You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 39. We'll be reading the entire chapter this morning. We continue in our study of Genesis. Still a good ways to go. Genesis is a lengthy book, isn't it? Genesis 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him for the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house, And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his his garment by her until... His master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. And as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Praise you, Father, that you've given us this story, Father, a story that we're going to see in so many ways is quite stunning. 
Father, we pray that you would open your word this morning to our hearts and in turn open our hearts, O Father, to your word. And that, Father, you would speak to each of us, O Father, and that you would present yourself to us, O Father, in a new way, O Lord. And that, Father, we pray that, Lord, uh, this would be to our prophets uh, in our spiritual walk with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, two weeks ago when we were in Genesis 37, uh, there we saw that uh, Joseph had been thrown into a pit by his brothers and that there was a conspiracy well underway to, uh, to murder him. And we can only imagine Joseph being thrown in the pit as he listened from the pit uh, of his brothers uh, discussing what they're going to do to him. Uh, it would be a really uncomfortable position. And we, you'll recall the story. Uh, ultimately, they decided upon Judah's lead, ultimately they decided instead of becoming murderers, they decided to get into the human trafficking business and sell Joseph off to Egypt. And if you just turn back to Genesis 37 and look at verse 36, you'll see these words. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold Joseph, uh, him at the antecedent of him is Joseph. The Midianites had sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. And then comes Genesis 38, and that was last week's subject in uh, arguably, Genesis 38 is really one of the darkest chapters, I think, in, in Genesis, and for that matter, maybe in the entire Bible. And the, the chapter is so dark that you'll recall last week we had to use some discretion even in reading it publicly. Uh, so it's certainly a dark chapter. And we really, I think the reader, as you're reading through Genesis 37, I think in many ways you're like, when you turn to Genesis 38, you're, you're, you're expecting to be in Egypt, you're expecting to follow Joseph down to see what's going on with Joseph down in Egypt. And then you, you get this kind of uh, parentheses, if you will, uh, concerning Judah and Tamar, which really there's quite a message in all of this, as we saw last week, that the Lord really does have a powerful message in Genesis 38 for us. But notice when you turn to Genesis 39 and verse 1, it's, it's in many ways almost exactly like Genesis 37 or Genesis uh, chapter 37, verse 36. Uh, it's easy to get your mind all tied up in chapters and verses here. But notice in verse 1, Genesis 39, verse 1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Okay, that's being repeated almost verbatim, isn't it? I think the narrator wants us to know that Joseph was brought to Egypt, right? It's pretty tough, to, pretty difficult to, to escape that detail. And furthermore, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of guard, that's something else I think is being emphasized here as well, has purchased Joseph, Potiphar being an Egyptian, and he had bought him from the Ishmaelites. Some, some folks get tangled up that one, once in one verse it's the Midianites, and in another verse it's the Ishmaelites. Don't, don't let that tangle you up. It's the, just two names for the same group, the same caravan that purchases uh, Joseph and carts him off uh, to Egypt. Now in verse 2, we're told that the Lord was with Joseph, and he had become a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Now, I think there's, in many ways, that's a little bit um, challenging to us. I don't think there's many of us that would consider uh, what's going on with Joseph in any way successful, because after all, he is a slave, right? 
But nevertheless, look how the scriptures look at it. Joseph uh, became successful. Uh, he became successful, even though he was enslaved to Potiphar. And in verse 3, his master, that is Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with him, that is Joseph, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. I, I, there's a lot being said in verse 3, actually, and con concerning Joseph's character. And the first thing that I'd point out to your attention is that Joseph doesn't get in the way of the glory of God. Because Potiphar is able to see that the real secret of his success and the real true source of his success is not his innate skill and cunning and intellect, but it's the Lord. And this speaks volumes about Joseph's character. He's a humble man who did all for the glory of God. For if he was a, self, if he was a man full of selfish ambition, then it would have been all about Joseph, wouldn't it? And in many ways, Joseph would have been stealing the glory for himself, taking the credit for himself. But what we see actually happening is Joseph conducted himself in such a way that it really, uh, he didn't get in any way. Uh, Potiphar, who's an Egyptian, who's a captain of the guard, who's an officer of Pharaoh, is able to see Joseph's God in action in Joseph's life. In other words, Joseph is quite a witness uh, to this Egyptian officer. And in verse 4, Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now notice the word favor. We've seen that before. All the way back a couple of chapters back, Joseph was the favorite son, wasn't he? And now he's the favorite slave. Now, I don't call your attention to this in order to condone Jacob, Joseph's father, in order to condone his favoritism of his son. That's, a, that's ugly, favoritism. I mean, we shouldn't love one child more than we love the other. Favoritism is ugly. We've seen this over and over again, the effects it has on the family. It's, it's, it's ugly stuff. But I pointed to your attention to see, well, Joseph... You know, there really is. I mean, if we, especially as we begin to take and, and look at Genesis 39 very carefully and see the character of Joseph, we've already seen enough that when we take Joseph's character and we compare it to his brothers, we see a stark contrast, don't we? And I'm not condoning Jacob's favoritism of his son. Fa parental favoritism is ugly. But I also want to point out that um, Joseph has this character about him, doesn't he? He has found favor with Potiphar, so much that we're so told that Potiphar brought him along. Uh, this idea of attended him. Potiphar started to bring him along everywhere he went. He becomes like a right hand to Potiphar, and he makes him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. Now notice verse 5. From the time that Potiphar had made Joseph overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed Notice, the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. In house and field. What does that phrase mean? That means he's thoroughly blessed. The household is blessed. The field is blessed. Today we would say the, the home is blessed and the business is blessed. 
The home is blessed. The vocation is blessed for the sake of Joseph. Now, the reader of Genesis may say, wait a second, this sounds really familiar. Didn't God make a promise to Joseph's great-grandfather that went something like this? In your seed, God says to Abraham, in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And what do we have happening here? Notice the strong emphasis on the fact that Potiphar is an Egyptian. And here is Abraham's seed. Here is one of Abraham's sons. And here he is conducting himself in Potiphar's house in such a way that he becomes a blessing to this Egyptian's home. Isn't God amazing? I mean, his promises, when he makes his promises, when he makes those promises, how dare us ever even offer a suspicion that they, they could do anything but come to pass? His promises are, are sound. Not one of them will fail. And here we see, ultimately, we know that that promise made to Abraham, by the way, it's my favorite promise of all the promises made to Abraham for obvious reasons, and I would say for selfish reasons. The promise that God says to Abraham, in, in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed because our family actually has been blessed. We are recipients of that promise. That's my favorite one. And here we see God, uh, his, his, his faithfulness, ultimately it won't be answered and fulfilled until Jesus, but you see how God is with his promises. They just spill over. They just, their, their promises are just so overflowing with grace, you know, that as they're carried through salvation history, they just leak everywhere, and grace just falls everywhere, and it just, you can almost see the path. You say, well, there, there's the bucket of grace that's been carried out across here. There it is all over the place. We see it everywhere. Not that grace is a substance. I'm not saying that. Uh, just using a metaphor that God is so, his, his promises are so overfilling, His grace is so overfilling that it just gets all over everything, doesn't it? It just gets all over everything. So in verse 6, Potiphar leaves everything that he has in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now you notice verse 6, notice how it's kind of divided in half. Um, Half of it, I think, belongs to the pericope that we just looked at, the little section that we just looked at. The other half of it is switching gears here. Now notice, there's a little caveat about Joseph's appearance. He was a handsome man, and he was handsome in form and appearance. Uh, what, what does that mean? It means Joseph was well-built and very handsome. That's what it means. That's exactly what it means. And notice in verse 7, after a time... His master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Now, a lot of times when we look at what follows, our focus turns completely to Joseph and the way Joseph refuses this temptation and overcomes this temptation. And we're going to do that. But I think if we rush off right to that, we're missing something that's very, very important for us to just take a minute and notice. Before we rush off to Joseph, let's look at what's going on in Potiphar's wife's heart. What's happening there? And I think it's quite instructive for us. Notice that she casts eyes on him. She casts her eyes on him. And 
Then she is moved to action in verse 7, where she makes this proposition. Now, between her noticing Joseph in this certain way, where the Scriptures say she cast eyes on him, he's been around for a while. He was probably with Potter for something like 11 years. About 11 years he's with Potter. He's been around for a while. She's seen him come and go, but she's never paid any attention to him. And then all of a sudden she looks at him, and there's this certain something that takes place. She notices his form. She notices that he's handsome. Her eyes are cast on him. Now, between the time that her eyes are first cast on him and she's moved to this action, there is a process that takes place in her heart that's worth looking at. When, his, when the image of his form and appearance reaches through the eye gate into her sinful heart, a forbidden relationship is formed. You follow what I'm saying here? A forbidden relationship, or I should put it this way, a forbidden attraction would be a better way to put it. A forbidden attraction. And this forbidden attraction is then coddled in her heart. She coddles it. She nurtures it. She flirts with it. Uh, Should that image start to fade from her memory, she takes another glance and she looks at it again. And what does that do? That serves to give more fuel to this forbidden attraction that she continues to coddle. How does she coddle it? She coddles it with inward thoughts. And as she continues to coddle it with these inward thoughts, what eventually happens? It gets stronger, it strengthens, until it bursts forth into action, doesn't it? It bursts forth and produces an action. And I point that to your attention because, listen, we think we can flirt. If, if we think we can flirt with sin, we need to know now, and we need to, we need to understand now, we cannot do that. We cannot do that. If, if we're flirting with sin in our life, whether it be this kind of sin or any kind of sin for that matter, if we're flirting with it and we're toying with it, thinking we can keep it under control, here's the problem. As we flirt with it, we strengthen it. And speaking of believers and Christ Jesus, two things actually happen. When we flirt with sin, we strengthen sin. We strengthen its uh, arm over us. And secondly, we weaken our faith. One and the same. As that sin strengthens in our life, our faith weakens. So we can't flirt with it. We can't flirt with it. Now, Joseph refuses. There's three things here I want to show you that Joseph refuses. Notice Joseph is stunning in this chapter, by the way. Uh, this, this is a chapter to go home this afternoon and read and study for a lot of reasons. But notice what Joseph does. In verse 8, he refused. And he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has, he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
Now, Joseph is, Joseph is throwing out three arguments here. They're really important for us. Three arguments. Notice the first. He says, behold. He refuses her and he says, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house and has put everything that he has in my charge. What is Joseph pointing at? He's pointing at the trust relationship that he has with Potiphar. He likes this relationship. He loves this relationship. He doesn't want to bring any harm to this relationship. Because to do this evil thing that she is suggesting that he do would change that relationship forever. They say, no. Don't you realize your husband has put me in charge of everything? Then he offers a second argument in verse 9, beginning of verse 9. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Now, the second argument that Joseph puts forth is an argument. Uh, 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 he puts forth Potiphar's benevolence or his generosity, if you will. Uh, he's pointing to the generosity of Potiphar. Potiphar's basically said, listen, Joseph, here's the keys to the house. And here's everything in it. And you can have everything in it. Everything's yours, except for my wife. She's forbidden to you. Sinclair Ferguson, commenting on this verse, said that it sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Here are all the trees, Adam, in the garden. You can partake of all of the trees in the garden except for this one tree. This one tree is forbidden. I think that's quite instructive. In fact, I think that throws a lot of light on what's going on in the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? Especially if we think, well, what did Adam do? It was so bad. He just ate from one tree. No, it's, it's, it's when, we, when we shine it in the light of what's going on in Potiphar's household, we see it in a whole different light, don't we? We see the magnitude of the sin. Joseph, you're free to enjoy everything in my house, but you are not free to enjoy my wife. And, Potiphar under, and, and Joseph understands that. He says, how can I do this? Look how good your husband has been to me. He's put me in charge of everything. We have this trust relationship. I, he, he's been so generous to me that he's basically opened up his house to, and he has offered me everything except for you. And then he offers a third, and this is the most powerful argument that he offers. He says, at the uh, second half of verse 9, he says, how can I do this great wickedness? and sin against God. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What does he point to there? He's pointing to his fellowship with the Lord. And he recognizes this to be evil. He knows it's evil. He sees the evilness in it. And he's like, how can I go there? He, he values the relationship that he has with the Lord. The strongest argument is saved for last. How can I do this thing? How can I do this great act of wickedness? Now, unlike Potiphar's wife, who, upon receiving the image of his appearance, reaching her sinful heart and flirting and toying with all this until it burst forth and producing actions, unlike Potiphar's wife, Joseph has a solid footing here, doesn't he? A very solid footing. Uh, this, this is what Jesus is saying when he says, if the eye offend thee, pluck it out. Don't toy with it. 
Be decisive with it. Destroy it. Do away with it right now and right then. And it's because he begins with, because Joseph begins with such a solid footing, he's able to endure. Because if you look at verse 10, this temptation is going on and on and on. Uh, We're told, and she spoke to Joseph day after day. So she's all over him. Um, Day after day, he's enduring this temptation. Until verse 11, but one day. You know, I have in my notes here, I, I have verse 11, quotation, but one day, end of quotation. There's always this day, you know. There's the normal temptation that's going on, which is bad enough, but then comes this day. What happened on this day? There's nobody in the house. There's nobody around. That may have been by, by her design. And I don't have any doubt that she was dressed in a certain way that day and probably had certain perfume on that day. And now a lot of the normal restraints that are in place, they're not in place any longer. And what does Joseph do? He goes into the house to do his work, unsuspecting a thing, and discovers, um, she catches, verse 12, she caught him by his garment and and says, lie with me. But what does he do? Verse 12, he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Joseph realizes when he has reached his limit. He's a man who knows how powerful temptation can be. And what does he do? He flees. And sometimes this is what we have to do when we're faced with temptation. The best thing to do is to flee. But the only problem is this is a dangerous business. This woman is a dangerous woman. She's a very crafty woman, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, and she is very dangerous. And with his repeated refusal, what do you suppose is going to happen? When, people, when, when, when folks who are under this kind of dominion of sin, when they're repeatedly told no, and they're used to having their own way, what happens as you reach the limit of that? Some commentators say the lust turns right into fury right into fury. Notice verse 13. As soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, oh, guess what? Her wheels start turning. Verse 14. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice, he cried And cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Now, uh, this this woman is good. This woman is really good. She, She is a woman who has a lot of experience in the art of deception. You know, one scholar has taken this apart and has taken a look and shown how many different devices she uses here. And there may be more that have gone unnoticed. But there's four specific devices that he points out that she uses. And she is no, this is not her first go-round in the art of deception. Uh, Notice what she says here. She calls to the men of her household, and she, she says to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew. A Hebrew. Now, she doesn't refer to Joseph as Joseph. She refers to Joseph as a Hebrew. Because here's the thing. If she would have referred to Joseph 
by his name. Well, the name brings in all the attributes associated with the name. If she would have said Joseph, then everyone who had heard would, would, would suddenly, the name of Joseph would bring about all they know about Joseph. And what do they know about Joseph? They know Joseph would never do this. So in order to break that down and to turn everybody against Joseph, she doesn't refer to Joseph by his name. She refers to him by the Hebrew, taking the personality, taking the personhood out of this, depersonalizing him. That's the first thing that she does. Second thing she does, notice she blames this on her husband. It's blame shifting. See, he has brought among us a Hebrew. In other words, this whole thing happened because my husband brought this guy into our house. Now, what does that do? That serves to, that serves to derail everyone from the facts. That serves to derail. That's an accusation. She is making this subtle accusation to her husband, like, it's your fault. You did it. It's all your fault. Now, what's that naturally going to do? What's it naturally going to do? It's going to, instead of thinking about the facts of the situation, he's going to think about whether he's for, to be blamed for this. What has happened? Am I really to be blamed for this? Am I that bad of a judgment of character? And I can't help but to think, and, and I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself here. I'm not, I don't think Potiphar really believes his wife wholeheartedly, and I'll show you why here in a few minutes. But I think this is especially calculated by her. And this is just me. This is just me. Just take this, take this just as Rick saying this. But I think this is especially calculated by her because he already realizes by marrying her, he has exercised poor judgment. Now, has he done it again with Joseph? I think this would really pluck a string because I don't think this is her first rodeo. Not at all. She's too good at it. So she blames it. She calls Joseph a Hebrew. She blames this on her husband. And notice, notice what she says. He has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. You know, what is that... Where is that coming from? What, is she, what she's suggesting is this, is this is, that, that, that this is just sport for, for Joseph. That this is just sport. And think of the overtones of that. Joseph is making sport of Potiphar's wife. That's what this suggests. And the last thing, notice the, notice the, the pronouns that are used. He has brought uh, this Hebrew among us, to laugh at us. Now, what does the us do? The us sets up this dynamic of us versus Joseph, subconsciously making it easier for the hearers to turn against Joseph. Boy, this is good. And I wanted to point this to your attention because you know something? This craftiness that we read about here, we're exposed to it on a daily basis. This is manipulative craftiness designed to deceive. And, you know, I, 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 you know, I, I call you to spend some time in this text and look exactly what she's doing. And then use what you gain from looking at this text as an antenna to take in a lot of the things that are going on around us that we hear, whether it be on the TV or on the radio or what have you. And you're going to see these devices used all the time. You're going to see this used all over the place. 
She's very good at what she does. Now, what happens? Well, her husband comes home and she, she reports to him everything that she has said. Verse 19, as soon as his, as soon as his master, that is Potiphar, as soon as he heard these words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Now, why do I think that Potiphar doesn't necessarily believe all this? What do you suppose would have been the penalty of someone who attempted to rape a captain of the guard's wife? Of all! What do you think would have happened to them in an instant? He would have been, he would have been executed immediately. And, and that's, to me, that's what makes this so stunning. I don't doubt for a second that Joseph understands the dynamic here. In fact, he could, he could play it another way. If he went along with her, he could really advance his career, actually. There'd be a lot of room for advancement if he would just go along with her, undoubtedly. Uh, but he also recognizes Joseph as we follow his life through, and you've read the story, you know, he knows human character very well. He realizes that she is a dangerous woman. He realizes that to continually to refuse her actually could mean his execution. But what's so stunning about this, what's so amazing about this, is he's willing to die rather than interrupt his relationship and fellowship with the, with the Father. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. He's smeared. Joseph gets smeared. And we need to take that in for a minute, too, because Joseph's character here is remarkable. We're told that the Lord is with him, and we're, we see very clearly that he gets smeared. And I think that's hard for us, because we would tell the story this way. Listen, if you're really serious with God, and God means everything to you, and the Lord's with you, then you're never going to get smeared. Is that biblical? No. That's so unbiblical. What's happening to Joseph? God is with him. He's remarkable. He's beyond reproach. What happens to him? He gets smeared. And really, having just said that, let's notice that Joseph doesn't do. Let's notice what Joseph doesn't do. He doesn't start boohooing. He doesn't like, he doesn't say, you know, I was faithful to the point of death, and this is my reward. This is what I get. It's not what he says. It's not what he says at all. No. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the Keeper of the prison. There's <laughs> that word favor again. You see that? <laughs> He's gone from being a favorite son to a favorite slave, and from a favorite slave to a favorite jailbird, to a favorite inmate. He's put in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and made him succeed in everything. So the Lord was with Joseph. And again, if the Lord had not been with Joseph, he would have been executed. 
And the Lord was with Joseph, and the Lord gave him favor even in jail. Now, <laughs> I think we want to stand back here for a minute and we'll say, okay, Joseph, how do you do it? What's your secret? How do you do it? I mean, when, I mean, wouldn't you like to know how you do it? How, how do you do it, Joseph? How do you do it? And the answer is um, God is with him. That's the answer. God is with him. I mean, the, the Lord is with him. Joseph, and, and, and I, it should be said this way, actually. It sh we should say it this way. Joseph knew the Lord was with him. Joseph knew the Lord was with him. Not just the Lord is with him, but Joseph knew the Lord was with him. Now, how about us today? I mean, um, as the faithful, can we know that the Lord is with us today? And the answer, all of you know the answer to that, don't you? Emphatically, yes. We can know that the Lord is with us. And someone might say, well, how do I know the Lord is with me? Well, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you can know that the Lord is with you. How? Because Jesus says he'll be with you always to the end of the age, the end of Matthew 28. You know, at the end of Matthew's gospel, just go to the end of Matthew's gospel and just read, read, start reading around verse 18 of Matthew 28 and read to the end. Jesus says, behold, lo, lo, I'm with you always, even to the, even to the end of the age. So we can know. We need to always have this before us. You know, Jesus bled and died on the cross that we may have new life, right? We're about to, we're about to celebrate that, actually, in Holy Communion. Jesus bled and died on the cross that we may have new life, right? And this new life that Jesus gives us is a life that's to be lived exclusively for Jesus. Is that right? What do we see? Joseph's life. Who is Joseph living for? He's living exclusively for God, isn't he? Our life is to be exclusively lived for Jesus. And if you're in Christ Jesus, here's something you can have certainty of. And that is the Lord is with you always to the end of the age. Always. Now, what, how, how does that play? Let's play that out. Let's tease that out a little bit. If we know that the Lord is with us, then we will glorify Him in everything that we do, won't we? That's how that has a tendency to fan out. The more we're aware that the Lord is with us always, the more it's going to affect us in plucking weeds out of the flower bed, uh, going off to work tomorrow morning. It's going to affect everything we do because we're only going to live for self-glory only when the fact that the Lord is with us begins to diminish out of our minds. But the more that we understand the Lord is with us, the more we're going to be inclined to glorify Him in everything that we do. It's going to be like a seesaw. Secondly, if we know the Lord is with us, we'll see sin for the evil that it is. Joseph sees this evil for the sin. He sees this sin for the evil that it is. He sees it right away. And our vision of evil, our vision of wickedness becomes more acute as we're more aware that the Lord is with us. Let me give you an example. We would talk altogether differently if Jesus would suddenly appear right in front of you. Then you will talk if you have, if you've forgotten that he's even alive. There would be a major difference 
And it's that principle right there. The more we're aware that the Lord is with us, it changes everything because we'll see sin for what, we'll begin to see sin more clearly for what it really is. And as we see it for what it really is, it, it, it loses its, its dominion over us. It loses its hold over us. And related to this is we're going to be able to overcome temptation. We're going to be able to overcome the temptation because the sin loses the promise that the, the lies that sin tells us are not going to have the effect on us. If we see sin for what it is, it's not going to have that effect on us. We're going to say, you know what? That's a lie. I have the Lord with me. Because I have the Lord with me, I don't need that. I don't need that filth in my life. I have the Lord with me. If I entertain this, I'm going to affect this relationship and this fellowship that I have with the Lord. Which is what Joseph does. It's his most powerful argument against Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife, isn't it? So we're going to overcome temptation. Because we won't want to interrupt the relationship. And if we know that the Lord is with us, we'll, we'll even be able to lay down our lives. This is the one that I've really been entertaining all week. It's like, I ask myself, Rick, would you be willing to lay your life down for the Lord? Would you be willing? Would you be, would you be able to do this? In and of myself, absolutely not. Never. But the more we come to know the Lord is with us, the God who's faithful in all that He does, the, God's, the God whose promises fail not. The God who has done so much for us. The God who promises so much in the future. All the more that we know that, yes, I would submit to you that the more that we know of that, yes, I think everyone in this room would be able to do that. There's been many people who have done just that. They've laid down their lives rather than displease the Lord. And I don't know, maybe I should have made this one first. But the fifth one, the last one, is if we know the Lord is with us, we will not fall into self-pity. Maybe I should have made that one first, but it's already over with now. I can't make it first now. It's fifth. Sorry. You can make a one, put a one in front of it if you want. But you know what? It's, it seems to me that Joseph could have gotten really bitter here. He could have got really, I mean, listen, man, I want to tell you. Hey, Joseph, why, why are you so angry? You know, why, why, why are you so, I'll tell you why I'm angry. I lost my mom when I was really young. I lost her when I was really young. And then my brothers hated me. They hated me all from the start. Um, my dad gave me this coat to wear, which basically said, hey, I'm the favorite. I was a marked man. Then they threw me in a pit. And I, in a pit, I listened to them discuss what they were going to do to me. Most of the time, they were talking about killing me. But then they decided to be gracious to me. And they sold me off to these Ishmaelites who carted me down to Egypt. And then I ended up fought. Well, finally seemed like I was getting somewhat of a break in Potiphar's house. Only when his wife, well, you wouldn't believe what his wife did to me. And I refused her and refused her and refused her and refused her. And this is what I get. I end up in prison. That sounds really familiar, doesn't it? We have no record of Joseph ever doing that. Joseph, how do you do it? How do you do it, Joseph? I'll tell you how I do it. The Lord's with me. The Lord's with me. Oftentimes, oftentimes I bellyache in self-pity over what really in comparison to this is petty nonsense. This really speaks... Um, to the self-pity, doesn't it? There's so much more going on here. I think it's a good place to stop. What do you think? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
Lord, press always upon us the importance that you're with us. Lord, even as we come to the table here now, Father, what does the table instruct us? Instruct us it instructs us that <laughs> you, were, you were so determined to have us with you that you sent your only Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ, into this world to live that perfect life that we couldn't live so that he could offer that life at the cross. And here are these elements that we have set aside, and for that purpose, for this purpose, are holy elements, symbols of your shed blood and broken body for us, symbols of Emmanuel, his broken body, God with us. Now Jesus shed his blood and gave up his life so that he could redeem us. Oh Lord, press upon our hearts with a, a, a increasing, uh, with progressive, with a progressive awareness, Father, that you're with us and you're with us always. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.